0: For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you don't have a Bible with you, it's uh, in your order of worship. Or there are Bibles on the back table. Or if you have a device, I'm sure you could download some app that will give you what you need. But we're in the book of Galatians this morning in chapter 5. We've taken the last few months really since September, to work our way through Paul's letter to these churches in Galatia. So, let me remind us of what we've seen up to now. So, Paul planted these churches in in the cities in the southern part of what we now call Turkey. Soon after planting these churches, as Paul moved on to do other works, other teachers came in behind him. Uh, not rare, I would guess, it probably happens a good bit, but as they came in, they began teaching these young Christians, these brand new Christians, that uh, Jesus is all well and good, but, but we, we think Paul was rather incomplete in what he thought, because if you want to have God's smile, if you want to, if you want to make, uh, to, to get God's acceptance, you also need to keep certain rules. Now, biblical rules, mind you, they're, they're good biblical rules, but rules all the same. And Paul writes this letter to them to tell them, no, that we are right with God through the faithfulness of Jesus alone and not through our faithfulness, through through his working and not through our working, through his good deeds, not through ours. And we are given this gift through faith in Jesus. And then Paul begins telling us about how this was true in his life. In chapter 2, he says, look, I was the best rule-keeping, most moral Jew you could imagine. And I was an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God because I opposed God's plan of salvation instead of the one that I wanted, which was, look how good I am, look how great I've done. I opposed God's plan, which was, look how great Jesus is, look at what he's done, put your faith in him. Paul became a Christian through an encounter with the risen Jesus And then Paul shows in in chapters 3 and and 4, especially how this was all part of God's plan. That the way in which Jesus fulfilled the law, the way in which the the Christian faith is proclaimed, that this is all part of God's plan from the very beginning. And then in chapter 5, he says, okay, now that we understand that this is the way God is going to redeem people, justify people, What would a community of people look like that believed this? What would a community of people look like who were all freed from the old way of being, for God's new creation, for the world that God would make, freed from not just the penalty of their sin, but the power of it? What would then that community look like together? Two weeks ago, we looked at how Paul said that, look, the reality is Christianity necessitates change. That, that change is not to get God's smile, it it's actually stems from it, but it's still necessity. And then last week he said what we change from is the flesh, that fallen nature, that technical term he uses for that the nature of humanity bent away from God, bent towards independence. And this week he says, that's what you were freed from, now let me tell you what you're freed for. You're freed for the fruit of the Spirit. So if you have your place in Galatians 5, would you stand? That's our habit here. I'm going to be reading verses 22 through 26 of chapter 5. This is God's Word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step With the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Friends, this is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we just ask for your Spirit's presence to come and move, to soften our hearts, to open our ears and our eyes, so we might see you, hear you, and receive you. Jesus, would you let your word and your work come to the fore, and let me just fall to the wayside. You hold the words of eternal life, so speak, Lord, for your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. I want to dive right in this morning. We have so much to cover. This is a really important week. So, uh, for many of us, for many of us in this room, my guess would be this is not the first time you've heard this passage, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Many of us had to memorize it in college when we were, uh, you know, I became a Christian in college. This was like you got to memorize this. Why? I-, I don't know, but it's an easy list. So go for it. Okay. So some of us have have ha- know this passage, but we misappropriate it. Others of us, we're just, you know. We're still confused. What does it look like to become a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian, to live out a Christian faith? Paul tells us this week. You know, I said last week, I said just a few minutes ago, that change in the Christian is expected. It's expected not to get God's smile, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But what does that change look like? What have we been freed for? That's the question we take to the passage this week. So, there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at two things, okay? Um, And if you are an outliner, I will warn you ahead of time, I've got lots of little sub points, 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 so just be prepared, okay? But uh, there are two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the picture of change, and then we're going to look at at its process. The picture of change, and then the process. Let's start with the picture, okay? Now, to begin, what I want to do is I want to make much of the metaphor. Paul's using a metaphor to talk about the Christian life, and specifically what we are supposed to be changed into, and the change that looks like in our lives, and that metaphor is found there in verse 22, when he says simply these five words, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, now this is important, to so stay with me. We can become dulled to these botanical metaphors, because we're not farmers. Well, most of us aren't. Some of us are. But th- these aren't things that we generally run to, and we think, oh, isn't these, these poor little primitive Bible people who had all these vegetable metaphors that mean something to them and they don't mean anything to us. Well, actually, they do. And and because we can think that, we can skip over it easy. But we need to understand exactly what Paul's talking about. He's making a definite distinction here. Because remember, we break up this passage. We break up this letter, right? The people who first heard it, they would have heard it read from start to finish. Uh, But we break it up. So last week, he talks about the works of the flesh... The very next thing people would have heard, the fruit of the Spirit. There's the distinction. You have the flesh's works, the things that we do, the things that we are actively engaged in, and then that which the Spirit brings about, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so as I want to, as, as we talk about this, I want to talk about this in, in three aspects of this picture. Okay, the nature of the picture, the character of the picture, and then its counterfeits. Okay, uh, in, in particular, the nature of the fruit. Okay, so... Look, the Western mind, especially after the Enlightenment, is highly uh, resistant to the idea of metaphor because metaphors are—they um, impl- have implied meaning, right? You look at your your uh, your loved one and you say you are my sunshine. Not that you ever do that, but if you were to say that, you don't explicitly state all that that means. That could mean lots of things, right? It could mean, like, for some reason, when you walk into the room, there's light glaring out of your eyeballs, or you, there's heat always, and like, you know, or whatever. But normally, it's generally something good. But it means a lot of things that we don't spell out. They're implicit. Paul is implying many things with this as well, okay? To see these characteristics that we're going to talk about in a minute as, a, as signs of Christian growth is great. But the fact that Paul calls this fruit is important. Here's why. Okay, again, if you're a note-taker, here they come. It is important because fruit grows internally consistently inevitably and uniformly. Internally consistently inevitably and uniformly. First, fruit grows internally. That should go without saying, right? Fruit comes from the inside of a branch. It doesn't you don't add it to the tree. Like it comes from the inside. Uh, The growth of plants comes from the inside. So for Paul to talk about Christian change in terms of fruit means that he expects Christian change, not moral change, but Christian change to happen from the inside out. It happens from the inside out. Now, the problem is that most of us expect that if we are to change, it will come from doing certain things, behavioral change but Christian change must be different it comes from the inside and works out and this is because the bible teaches us that our problem isn't our behavior it's our hearts right some of you've been here a while you you know this language but let me remind us the problem isn't just that we isn't just what we do uh, the problem isn't that to use biblical language we do sinful things the problem is according to the scriptures we are sinners <clears throat> we sin because we are sinners We aren't sinners because we sin. Right? Uh, we, we, uh, We do these things because of something in us. So if any change is going to happen, it must be change that happens in us to produce this change. So it's internal. It's also consistent. What I mean by this is that fruit grows slowly. Now, I don't have fruit trees in my yard because I've been told by people who know that if you want good fruit to grow on trees, they have to look really ugly. And I'm all about appearances, so I don't have ugly fruit trees. But those of you who do know me know that there is certain things that I have that I'm very proud of, and it has to do with the little green stuff that you walk on. I am a lawn guy. I love my lawn. It is a carpet. It's a beautiful, green, lush carpet. May it always be so, okay? Um, And I spend lots of time making it that way. And so... uh, Here's the thing, if I sit, it's it's getting warmer outside, if I go sit at home and it's 67 degrees and I look at my lawn, I cannot watch it grow, but it's growing. Now, I can come back in three days, especially right after I mow, and I'll see that it's grown, and in the height of the summer, I start to get really frustrated at that, but it it grows, okay? These things grow. It is happening, it is hard to see, but it is happening, okay? Okay? This is the same thing that Paul's trying to get at here. Christian growth is not overnight. Some of us have come from traditions in which that is pushed hard. If you're from a Christian tradition and it's pushed hard, like, look, if you know Jesus, you're changed. Everything's different now. And I threw it away and I never walked back to him again. Like, if that's true of you, praise God. That is not true of most people. That is not normal Christian change. That is exceptional Christian change. Okay? Okay? Normal Christian change is consistent, it is slow, but it is happening. So it's internal, it's consistent, it's also inevitable. Here's what I mean. Do you notice how the fruit is described? Paul says these are the works of the flesh, and he does not say, and the fruit of the Christian, right? Works of the flesh, and then the fruit of your better parts. He says the fruit of the Spirit, It isn't your fruit at all. It's the fruit's or the spirit's fruit. Okay, in the original, the the grammatical form is one of ownership. This is fruit that belongs to the spirit. This this means that the same spirit, the same spirit that hovered over the waters of the deep to bring order out of chaos and to create light out of darkness, that the same spirit is actually working to produce change in the life of the Christian. If that is true, then we cannot say, well, the problem is I'm just not strong enough, not good enough, not determined enough. It ain't up to you anyway. If the Spirit of God can raise Jesus from the dead, you think he can't change you? Of course he can. That's what the Spirit does. This is important, and so I want to hold here for a second. There is this older argument, some of you will be familiar of, that, that um, takes place in Christian circles, in which we argue, is it possible to have Jesus as Savior but not have him as Lord, right? Some of you might be familiar with that. Can I have Jesus? Here's the way it comes down to. Can I have Jesus as my get out of hell card, a free card? Can I get him as my get out of hell free card and not have to ever listen to anything he says? Is it okay if I can walk the aisle 30 years ago or 25 years ago or 25 days ago and then never have any impact in my life and still be part of God's people? Go to heaven, name it. Paul says... No. No. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you become a home for God. That God takes up residence in you. He moves in. That God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, and that this same God, like I said, who brought order out of chaos begins to work in you, begins to produce something in you. So, yes. Change may be slow. Yes, it may be gradual. But it does happen. It must happen. Things that are alive produce fruit. Things that are alive produce fruit. If they don't, we know there's something wrong. If you have a tree and it doesn't, you know, you have a flowering tree and one year it doesn't produce flowers, something is wrong. What is, what's wrong with the tree? It's supposed to do this. It's alive, right? Maybe it's sick. Maybe something is wrong. Alive things produce fruit. And if they don't, there's a sign there's something wrong. Do you see that? This doesn't mean it happens overnight. This doesn't mean we accept Jesus and all of a sudden we never deal with sin anymore. But it does mean that, if, that we will change if we actually have saving faith. Listen to me. I, I've said this before, but I want to say this again. That the reformers, the, the Protestant reformers said it this way. You are justified by faith alone. No doubt. Justified by faith alone through Christ alone. Absolutely. However, the faith that justifies you is never alone. You are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always produces change. Okay? So it's internal, it's consistent, it's inevitable, but lastly, it's uniform. Okay? This is a commonly missed aspect of this. Do you notice that Paul calls this... The fruit of the Spirit, singular. And then he lists nine words. Paul is not a grammatical buffoon, okay? Paul understands uh, subject-predicate, subject-verb agreement, all that different stuff. He gets that. He's being very intentional. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we are not talking about a list from which you can pick and choose. Well, I've got the loving thing down, patience. Not so much. You know, I, I'm doing pretty good with my self-control, but I'm not super humble. Okay? If you are loving, but not patient, good, but not gentle, self-controlled, but not humbled, Paul says, this is not Christian change. These all go together. They are a singular fruit. You may look at them from different angles... You may see one as a perspective on the whole, but it is a singular fruit. And this is because there are ways in which we can seem to have some of these, but not as the Bible would define them. They must go together. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So if, if you have questions, just hold on to them because we've got, we'll, we'll cover it. Okay, so that said, that's the nature of it. Now let's look at the character of the fruit, Okay. We're just going to go down the list. I'm going to explain what these things mean uh, because we can mistake some of these ideas. Okay? The first that Paul lists is love. We love love in our culture. We love it. It's great. Love. Let's be loving. Okay? But here's what love means in the Bible. Love means seeking the flourishing of another person at cost to yourself. That's what love means. It does not mean case sera, sera let people go their own way and just smile at them and say you be, go be warm and well fed we love you uh, and so you go do whatever you want. It means seeking the flourishing of another person at cost to yourself, even if that means lying down on the grenade so they don't once they've pulled their own pin. Okay, that's love, and it is to do this not because of what they can give you, but simply because of who they are. It's not disinterested in the sense that it doesn't care at all. No, it's it's very interested. It's interested in the person, not what they do. Not what they can return, not what you can get reciprocated to you, just in them. That's love. The second is joy. Joy is a satisfaction based on God and who God is, not on what he is doing for you. That's what joy is. It's a satisfaction based on God and who he is, not on what he is doing for you. In other words, it's not circumstantial. That's joy. Then there's peace. Peace is not ceasing hostility. I mean, it is that. It's not just that. Peace is rest. Peace is resting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Okay? Peace is resting in the fact that God is sovereign, he is in control, and he is good. Even if you can't do all the calculus, it's a rest in that fact. The fourth is patience. Some of your Bibles say long-suffering. It means being able to face hostility and suffering without resentment towards God and towards others. You know how that works, right? Because sometimes we face hostility and it's easy to vent it towards God, but sometimes we can vent it towards others because they're not facing it. Long-suffering means being able to face hostility and suffering without resentment towards God and others. And then there's kindness. Kindness in our culture is, I stand on my perch and I throw things at people, right? I'm so kind to them. I'm placing myself, I'm throwing them my, my dollars or whatever. You know, like, like, that is not kindness in the Bible. Kindness in the Bible is serving others from a place of vulnerability, right? It's serving others from a, from a posture of vulnerability, opening yourself to them. Then there's goodness. Another way of saying goodness, another way you can translate that word, is integrity. Which simply means being the same person whether someone is watching you or not. Being the same person uh, in the morning, in the dark, when no one can see you, as you are in the middle of the day around everyone you want to respect you. Integrity. And the seventh term is faithfulness. Faithfulness in this context does not mean faith in Jesus, Uh, so much as faithfulness towards other people, in relationships towards other people. In other words, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. What you say matters, and you keep your word. It's being reliable to your word. That's faithfulness. Gentleness is the next one. Or humility, some of your Bibles may say that. It means, clearly, gentleness and humility. Dealing with others, but not from a posture of superiority. Dealing with others, uh, relating to others without a sense of superiority. And then the last one is self-control. That seems obvious, right? Self-control. Self-control means being able to rein in your desires to an extent that you are able to adequately navigate what is a want versus what is a need. And that you are not pulled this way or that by every whim that enters into your heart. No matter how long you've felt it, I've had this whim as long as I can remember. Fine. Is it a want or a need? Okay? According not to what you define, but what God defines. That is self-control. Now, before we move off these things, let me just say one thing about why these and not others. Okay? Remember, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about the works of the flesh. And it was this heinous list. And we went, look, the list is representative, not comprehensive. This isn't every possible evil deed that could be done by your fallen nature. It's representative. Okay? Same thing's true of this. It's not comprehensive of everything the Spirit produces in you, but it is true. It's not comprehensive, but it is true. And the reason why Paul lists these things, that these things are the fruit of the Spirit, is because these are all ways that God is described in the Bible. These are all ways that God is described in the Bible. He loves. He delights in his own glory. He is at peace. He has great patience. He serves those who hate him. He's always true to his word. He's humble enough to take flesh in Jesus, and he is infinitely self-controlled. So the Spirit is producing these things in Christians because he is forming us into the image of God. He's making us more like the God in whose image we were created. So that's the character of fruit. We've looked at the nature of the fruit. Now let's deal with the counterfeit, okay? It's a little bit less comfortable. This is why it's so important to understand that this is a uniform process. You may be an insanely jovial person. Some of you are, okay? I know you. You're happy. You're fun to be around. People like to be around you. The life of the party. uh, Your smile lights up a room and everything is great when you're there. You are outgoing. You're pleasant to be around. That is not the same as joy. Not the same as joy. Why? Because you can be very jovial, but not very faithful or patient. We call that extroversion, not joy. The Spirit did not come to make you an extrovert, praise God. No offense, extroverts, okay? He comes to make you joyful. Some of you seem really patient, right? But you're not really patient at all, you're cynical. You're not patient. You've just hedged your bets. Your bar is really low. You just don't expect much, because then you won't be disappointed. So you're not patient. You just kind of expected everything was going to go bad today. Right? You were ready for it. You may seem loving, but instead you were simply accepting, which is love without faithfulness or goodness. If you have self-control without humility... Can I tell you? Listen to me. If you have self-control and you're like... I got the self-control thing. But you have no humility... That is not from the spirit. That is from your pride. That is from me going... I won't be like that person. Watch me. Guys, you know how this works, right? Because you... Ladies, let me let you know a little secret. You want to know why guys don't cry that much? With emotions? It's not because there's something more emotional about you than men. Men have lots of emotions. You want to know why men don't cry at stuff? Because somewhere, somewhere along the line... Someone said... Stop acting like a little girl. And we learned real quick. Can't be like that. Where does that come from? Is that self-control? No, it's superiority. It's because somewhere along the line, we were convinced, I'm better than that. I'm better than a little girl. I don't have to cry. It's bunk. There's nothing godly about that. You see this? Like, listen... If you think you are loving, but you have no patience, you aren't loving. If you think you are gentle, but you don't ever confront someone on their sin, you aren't gentle. You're just conflict-avoidant. Or, or probably more likely, it's not even that you're conflict-avoidant. It's that you know that you're, you can't get your life together, and you're scared if you confront someone on their life, that they're going to turn around and be like, well, what about you? And you're going to be like, mm-hmm. and you're going to run away. Like this is, That's not Gentleness. If you seem peaceful, but you have no joy, friend, you are not peaceful. You are cynical so that you won't get disappointed. That is not godly. This kind of change that Paul is talking about is symmetrical. Like I said, it's like a diamond. There are facets that he lists. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Those are facets, and each of them leads into the others. You can look through them to see the others. Humility leads to love and patience. Love leads to faithfulness and gentleness. Self-control must lead you to humility and peace. The rest of that is simply counterfeit. That is false fruit. That is not fruit of the Spirit. There's another thing that we can get into in false fruit, okay? And that's this. Notice that when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say change in other people, right? The the fruit of the Spirit is how good your small group is being led or how great the lesson that you taught in the Bible is that everyone got or all these people that you're meeting with whose lives are changing. That is not fruit of the Spirit in you, that's fruit of the spirit in them. You can be a leader in this church and suddenly turn around and go Pfft. We need to be checking our own lives, okay? I said this last week, but let me say it again. These changes are essential to the Christian life. If you, and even more than you, if other people who are close to you, if other people in your small group or or people in your family, if they're close to you, they do not see these things growing, I am not saying, and I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. I am not saying you can't be a Christian. I'm saying you cannot be sure that you are one. It's not that you can't be a Christian. It's certainly possible. But there should be doubts. The fruit of the Spirit's work in us is these things. That is is what he does. And if it's not happening, maybe he's not there. Okay? So that's what Christian change is supposed to look like. But how, right? Because some of us right now are really overwhelmed because I just, because what I just said. Like, what, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? How do we change? Well, the process is laid out for us here in this text We eyes to see it. Look down at verse 23. Paul says first, against such things, he gets down with his list, He says against such things there is no law. Okay? Now, he did this last week and it seemed a little strange last week, it seemed strange this week. In the middle of him talking about this stuff, he just drops the law. Pfft, the law. As if it had something to do with everything he was talking about and we don't see the connection. Here's what he means. He means that you cannot legislate these kind of things. Ultimately you cannot change behavior from the outside in. Can you? It doesn't work that way. Think with me. Most of us believe that we can change by behavioral change. But this idea of fruit pushes against that because it deals with internal categories. The law can tell you do not speed and do not steal. The law cannot tell you don't be or the law cannot tell you be patient and don't be greedy right? How how does anyone tell that? Do we speed because we're impatient? Yes, we do. Do we steal things because we're greedy? Yes, we do. But you can't legislate the internal change. We can only legislate the behavior. Fruit is about the internal change. The law, rules are at best about external things. Again, think, think about the metaphor. If I go to my dead tree in my backyard, and there's there's one, actually it's in my side yard, I call it the zombie tree. Half of it's dead, the other half's alive. It's very bizarre. Um, I I know a tree guy is in my small group, he says it's, it's the most alive dead tree he's ever seen. If I tape a piece of fruit to one of those limbs, it does not make that tree alive. Does it? Fruit is the evidence of life. It does not create it. Can't take an apple and go tape it up there and be like, oh, look at that resurrected. Like, it doesn't work that way. In the same way, trying to behaviorally change this way cannot work. Paul is saying, these things cannot be legislated. And you know this. You know you can't legislate joy or patience. Not if it's the way the Bible defines them. You can't even, you can't even legislate love. But at the same time, these things are the fulfillment of the law. What does that mean? It means, Paul says, if these things are true in you, you don't even need the law. Why do you even need it? If you have these things, like then you've fulfilled it. The law is fulfilled. Let me remind us why this is. The Bible says that you and I are alienated from God by nature. Not by what we do, but by what we are. You and I can change what we do. Many of us are very good at it. Like I said, it's that self-discipline thing that doesn't come with humility. We're very good at that. We're not, we, but we cannot change who we are. The problem is not that we're not good enough. It's that we're driven to independence from God. We want to find our satisfaction apart from Him. We want a a name, a, a status apart from Him. We want to have a good record apart from Him, have an authority apart from Him. That's our problem, being apart from Him. That's the problem. And so just doing behavioral change is simply prettying up on the outside when our issue is internal. Our hope has to be changing who we are. And that's why the definitive break of verse 24 is so important. Look there. Paul says this. But those who are of Christ Jesus, uh, some translations say those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh. This is so great. Listen close. The Bible, the, the Bible tells us that we cannot make ourselves right before God. Because our problem is trying to do stuff ourselves. If you're, if you're you can't make yourself right if your problem is yourself, right? Like, that's, that's the whole issue. And so God comes to make us right in Jesus Our natures are bent away from God. We cannot depend on him. So God takes on flesh in Jesus to live the dependent, perfect life that we couldn't. But then bears the weight of our betrayal of God on the cross. And he did that, the scripture says, to take our place. In other words, it's substitutionary. Substitutionary. Here's the way it works. Okay, listen close. Here's how it works. When we place our faith in Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our life. He sees Jesus' life. Our life's full of junk, and instead he sees Jesus' life. Now, some of you are like, that doesn't make any sense. Let me me be clear. You know what you've done, right? I know what I've done. And you know the things you're hoping no one ever finds out about, better yet God. When God looks at you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he sees the perfect, flawless work of Christ. Which means that God just doesn't begrudgingly accept you. Right? Some of us think that. That that we accepted Jesus and then and then God's like, man, I can't believe I let that joker in. Ah, I'm stuck. Like, what do I all right? Well, as long as you're here, push a broom. Like, that's what we think of him. But that's not what this is saying. God doesn't begrudgingly accept us, he delights in us. In Jesus, God doesn't just love you, friends, he likes you. Cheer up. God likes you. But it's not just that. Jesus' death for sin also becomes yours. All that you have done is dealt with. Every sin, every wound you've inflicted, every imperfection you've tried to either mitigate or justify has been answered for. And so in a very real way, Paul says, your flesh, that that technical term for your fallen nature, that, that the flesh has been definitively crucified, killed, dealt with. And what this means for us in plain terms is this no matter what your life was like before you came to know Jesus, a definitive break has happened. Something has changed. You place your faith in Jesus and him alone and a break with the old way, a way that was characterized by the flesh has happened. In, in theology, we call this definitive sanctification. You went from not my people, according to God, to my people. Outside of God's favor, into God's favor. But not just that. Look, that's all... Um, That's all forensic. What I just said is all forensic. In other words, it's all legal. You went from guilty to not guilty, to, to alienated to beloved. That's great. But that's not what this is entirely talking about. It's more than that. Not just have you been rescued from sin's penalty. That's the forensic part. That's the legal part. You've also been rescued from sin's power. From its power. Sin is no longer the operative principle in your life change can happen. And I don't care. Listen, some of you are like, Rick, you don't know my life. I don't need to. Because I know mine. And I've got enough junk for all of us. Change can happen. But we said that doesn't happen externally, right? So how does it happen? We've got to get beneath. Look down at verse 25. Paul says this, If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Okay? That's a little cryptic. Let me explain what he means. Okay? I just said that we call the definitive break definitive sanctification, right? Sanctification is being made more like Jesus. Definitively, that has happened. However, there's a walking it out. There's a working it out. We call that progressive sanctification. You've got to hold the two in together, okay? Progressive sanctification. Now, here's how we see that. First, this is a conditional sentence, right? The first part of that is essential. If you live by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, We've got to keep the order correct, folks. You've got to keep the order correct. Christian change is a result of God's grace in your life. It is not a a way to get it. Christian change is a result of God's grace, not a method of getting it. If you are already alive by the Spirit, if this is true of you, Paul says, then keep in step. Anything other than that... Any way in which we are like, I'm going to keep in step with the Spirit so that I can live by the Spirit. Paul calls that independence. That is sin. Let me say that again. That is sin. But if you are alive by the Spirit, keep in step. So what does it mean to keep in step? It means what we talked about last week. Did you notice when Paul says the flesh is crucified, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh? He doesn't stop there. Along with its passions and its desires. See, he goes beyond just the works, down to the heart, down to the motivations. And so that's where this is going as well. Christian change happens on the level of motivations. Keeping in step with the Spirit means desiring what the Spirit desires. And what did we say last week? That what the Spirit desires over and over again in the New Testament is Jesus. It's moving from those things that we over-desire, those lusts we over-desire, and instead moving our desires to Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, friends, not just what are we doing, but why are we doing it? We gossip. Or we look at porn or we're constantly angry and outbursts like yelling at our kids or our, our roommates or, or we obsess about money or just constantly think about ourselves. Why? Why? That, when we start to answer that question, is where the gospel could produce change. Look, most of us obsess about money because we think that if we have enough of it, we will be safe. Or, if we have enough of it, we'll finally be satisfied. Because money equals toys, toys equals fun, fun equals satisfaction, right? Until you've tried it. Some of us struggle with pornography because we want to feel strong and wanted and adequate. Those pictures fool us into thinking that that's true. Or we chase our desires thinking that the next one will finally satisfy us. The scriptures tell us that what we are looking for can only come from Jesus. You know, uh, G.K. Chesterton is kind of, I I can't, I've heard some conflicting reports about whether he actually said this, but people, uh, you know, put this in his mouth all the time. He said that when someone knocks on the door of a brothel, he's always hoping that God is the one who answers the door. What he means by that is that when, when someone is going and looking for that thing, what they are really hungering for is the Lord. And this, this is what Paul is talking about as well. Real change won't come by simply abstaining from a behavior. Look, that needs to happen. I'm not saying that doesn't need to happen. But real change comes by looking to Jesus for those things instead. Now let me say two final things. First is this. It would be very easy to think, okay, well, since, Rick, since Christian change isn't about, like, getting on it, doing stuff, then it must be about just sitting around waiting for God to deliver me. No, it's not about passivity. It's just about motivation. It's about heart change. It's about desires. Which, frankly, is a lot harder than behavioral change. And so the second thing I want to say is you can't do this on your own. In my notes, I said often we can't do this on our own. But even, even saying it in the first service and then later, i to, like, like, no, it's not often. It's just period. You can't do this on your own. We need others. Listen, I can't even see all the ways that I blow it. I can't even see. Some of those things are, I'm completely blind to. Blind spot. It's back here. Huh? You can see it. I can't. We need help. This is why this church is formed not around, not just around Sunday mornings, but around groups. So that we can live life with other people and they can come in and go, uh, Rick, you got a little something back here that you can't see. You need to take a look at that, man. Because it's messing people up. Had that happened this week. Somebody confronted me with, with something as, as common to me as, like, what I look like when I walk through this, this door right here on Sunday morning. And what that was communicating to people. Ugh. I can't see it. Other people can. You need help. You need other people. Some of us, just having other people around us, even that's not going to be enough. We're going to need help from professionals. Like other people. There's no shame in that. That's Courageous. There's nothing wrong with that. I've been through it. I continually go through it. I'm like, I need nope, another checkup. we got to go to somebody who can help talk to us and show us what's going on in our own hearts. Help us explore that. Don't hesitate to seek help because, friends, you weren't made for independence. You were made for the Lord. And when the Spirit dwells in you, change will happen. It, will, it may be slow. It may be hard for you to see but it is inevitable because the god who created order out of chaos dwells in you and he will order your chaos as well. Would you pray with me? Lord over this time just please we ask your presence and your and your pleasure. Lord, would you bless us, bless the work that we uh, set out to do from here which is simply to this to keep in step with the spirit. For those of us who are not living by the spirit, we've never come to Jesus before. I pray that you would give faith. For the rest of us who still struggle and trying to figure this out, would you would you help us, Lord? Would you bring others alongside us to help us, to help us either see the work that you have done so that we can be encouraged or to see the work that has yet to be done so that we can begin working on how to get at those desires and have them placed on Jesus. We ask that you would do this for the sake of your name, for the glory that you're due, and so that, Lord, you might transform this community. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, we didn't do it. The Spirit did it. But so that, Lord, we can, the, the world can see a different kind of community and give praise to the only one who could have done it. You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.